Good morning, Northbrook. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We're past halfway in Hebrews. After chapter 9, we'll have four chapters left, which uh, is kind of hard for me to believe, but we're making our way through it. I'm going to be reading verses 1. Well, actually, I'm going to go up to uh, verse 8 of chapter 8 and read down through verse 10 of chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 10 of chapter 9 specifically, but um, this is a... I've said so many times before that Hebrews is hard to break up because it's just the flow of thought that continues through. Uh, and and you, you lose things when you break it up, particularly this morning. But uh, chapter 9 is beginning to discuss what has been said in chapter 8 and continues on. But uh, I want us to have that background from chapter 8 as we look at chapter Nine today. So we'll begin reading in verse 8. He's speaking of the old covenant. And he says, For he finds fault with it. It says them in the ESV. Certain translations have it. I agree with the it because he's talking about the covenant. He finds fault with it when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant, though, had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But in the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. 
According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So last week I started out by talking about myself and gave you a massive revelation about myself, something very, very personal that I like, Coke. Uh, Matt wrote me later and told me that he likes Pepsi, which I told him I would pray for him, but I appreciated his confession and uh, acknowledgement of his sin. But this morning I have a question for you. I want you to think of your favorite Bible story. Of all the stories in the Bible, what's your favorite Bible story? Anybody want to volunteer their favorite Bible story? Matt? Okay, Elijah and Mount Carmel. I thought of that one. That means it's a good, it's a good story. If, if I thought of the same one, it's good. Michelle? Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego. Good? I guess they're all good stories. Anybody else? Come on. Somebody else. John 9. John 9, which is for everybody? The man born blind. The man born blind. Okay. That's not a normal one that people say or talk about. Good, though. Yes, sir. David and Goliath, good, it's on my list. It's a good one. That's one that everybody knows whether they're church people or not. The, the, they use that illustration all the time. Is it wrong to like J.L. and <laughs> Which one? J.L. and the No, that's fine. <laughs> Actually, that's a pretty good story. It's, uh, I want to talk women's empowerment. That's a good story. It's the one where she drives the, uh, the, the tent peg through the bad guy's head while he's sleeping. So, got to go read that one. That is a pretty good story, actually. Yes. Ruth. The whole story, which is a good one. Good. So we all, we all have these stories that we, we just resonate with for whatever reason. And thinking of that, Reality, Scott, you might want to be careful when you go to sleep tonight. Wear a helmet or something. <laughs> We're worried about you now, Shannon. <laughs> yeah. And we have these, these stories. For me, the Israelites crossing the Red Sea is, is a big story for me. The crumbling walls of Jericho. Uh, it's just the demonstration of God's power and how he takes care of the issues that need to be dealt with. Uh, a baby in a manger. Most people often will speak of the Christmas story as one of their favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, one that comes to my mind is the little boy's food that fed over 5,000 people. That's just an amazing story, and I often wonder how that kid felt when he left, um, if he was just totally awed by what Jesus had done, or if there was some sense of satisfaction of him being a part of that. I don't know. 
Um, the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday is one of my favorites. But whatever those, whatever those stories are for us, um, all of us who are familiar with the Bible, I think, have an answer to that question. But I, I would suggest to you this morning that for few of us Christians, the most important story in the Bible is also our most favorite story in the Bible. Matter of fact, this particular story, which, which everything in the Bible hinges upon, all the stories before it point forward to it, and all the stories or information after it draw our attention back to it. This particular story is not very often mentioned as people's favorite story. And not only is this story the greatest of all Bible stories, this story is the most important, significant, it's the most significant moment in the history of humanity. There's no more important moment in all of history because the destiny of every human being is linked to what happened in one afternoon. And as I thought about that, and I've been doing a lot of reading of history over the last um, several months. It's kind of funny, as you get older, all of a sudden history becomes important to you, which is very ironic because now it's almost over and all what you should have learned from history when you were younger, um, most people don't learn. But I've been reading a lot of history and, and one of the things that I've started to observe is that in these, in these times of massive shifts in human history, Oftentimes, there's a seminal moment in the midst of it. There, there, is a, there is a brief moment where a decision was made or an act occurred, and that decision that was made or that act that happened that was, that was relatively brief just totally changed the course of human history. Everything was different forever after that. And in this case, with this story, the drama played itself out in about six hours and it reached its climax as three words were shouted out in the darkness of an afternoon. It is finished. As Jesus released the life of his body and the security of his soul into the care of his father, Nothing, absolutely nothing, would ever be the same again. A blood-soaked cross and a dying Jesus may not be your favorite story, but there's not a greater story in history. Everything from the creation of the world until the new creation of everything hinges and points to that moment in history. And this is the story to which the writer of Hebrews draws our attention in Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10, part of chapter 10. He's been talking to us in this letter about God's revelation of himself. And he's been moving us through this revelation of himself in Jesus towards this moment 
of the cross and what was accomplished there. Every aspect of God's relationship with his people is premised upon what Jesus accomplished in his death upon the cross. Jesus, the great high priest of God, offered himself as the final sacrifice for the sins of God's people, bringing them into covenant with God and giving them hope not only in this life, but in the life to come. At the heart of Jesus' sacrifice is this thing called a covenant. We don't use these, that word much anymore. About the only time that you hear the word covenant anymore is when you talk about a neighborhood covenant. Of the things you can't and you can't, you can and can't do to your house and property within a neighborhood if you have a neighborhood covenant. But in fact, it's a very important word in the Bible. And it's a word that we Baptists don't use very much. If you get into other denominational circles, the word becomes much more uh, popular or much more used. But in our circles, we don't use it a lot. But the Bible talks often about the covenant and God's promises of a, a new covenant that's going to come. He enters into covenant with his ancient people at Mount Sinai when Moses comes down with the with the words written in the tablets of stone, second edition, 2.0, because the first one got kind of smashed. But he comes down with it, and he comes to the people, and he says, this is what God has said. This is what he expects. Will you keep these? And the people said, oh yeah, no problem. We're in. We're good. Yeah. And so hyssop is taken, a plant is taken, an animal is slaughtered, the blood is captured, the, the plant is taken and dipped into that blood and it's sprinkled out upon the people and that blood seals the covenant that God makes with them. And we talked about that last week, that it was a conditional covenant, that if they obeyed, they would receive the blessings of the covenant. If they didn't obey, they would be under the curse of the covenant. But Hebrews begins to talk about this thing called a new covenant. And we're told at the end of chapter 8, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to read chapter 8 again, where he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old, old is ready to vanish away. We're told that this new covenant supersedes the old covenant. It makes the previous one obsolete and the new covenant we're told is a better covenant one that is permanent and conditioned only upon the obedience of one person it's not conditioned upon the obedience of the people who are in the covenant it's conditioned upon God himself and specifically upon the obedience of Jesus Christ the righteous we're told it's a better covenant because God's desires will be put into the heart of his covenant people. They will be his people and, and he will be their God. That was promised to them in Exodus 34. God said to these people under the condition of the covenant that he made with them then that I will be your God and you will be my people. But they were not 
his people because he was not their God. And so in chapter 8, these words that are really difficult for us to hear, because we don't like to think of God in this way. But in chapter 8, he says, They did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them. That's, that's one of those phrases we like to just skip over because God is love. But it was a conditional covenant. And he wants us to understand that that covenant is done. They violated the covenant. I showed no concern for them. He couldn't be any more blunt. But this new covenant, he says when this new covenant comes, I not only will put my desires into them so that they will desire what I desire, but I will be their God and they shall be my people. Not conditional upon the people, but upon Jesus. And all of the people who are in this covenant will know him. We won't have to go to one another in this covenant community of, of true covenant people and say, you need to know God because you already will know God. And you'll want to know more about God. And finally, in this new covenant, and the thing that the writer of Hebrews says over and over again in chapters 8, 9, and 10, is I will remember their sins no more. A promise made by God about the new covenant with his new covenant people that the writer of Hebrews brings everything down to as the thing he wants you to understand and get. That God promised through the prophet Jeremiah that there would be a day when a new covenant would come and he will remember the sins of his people no more. And that would happen when the new covenant was inaugurated. Beginning here in chapter 9, and I've said this repeatedly, but chapter 9 and 10 of Hebrews have, have been so instrumental in my life and in my heart and in my thinking to understand my relationship with God as my Father and to understand what Jesus has said and done and who he is. I, I speak of it in terms of watershed moment. It was a moment where so much of what I had been taught growing up in fundamentalist circles and doing and performing and works righteousness suddenly were exposed for what they were because of what Jesus had done. And it just opened my eyes. I can't tell you how big of a moment it was for me. And, and it was not, I, I guess I can't say that it was this moment of reality where everything, I, I just changed how I saw everything. I guess I said that, but it was, it was a watershed moment in the, in the sense of things began to shift and I began to see the Bible in different ways. And I began to see parts of the Bible that had never been explained to me, had never been taught to me. Because people have a tendency to avoid the things that seem to disagree with what they have concluded. And as I began to understand that God 
had made a covenant and I was his peop- one of his people that my sins were never again to be remembered by God, it shifted. Things just began to move. And it took years. But my views became dramatically different as far as my relationship with God as my father. But here in chapter 9, he draws our attention back to the old covenant. And he draws our attention back to a specific aspect of the old covenant. And that is the thing that was called the tabernacle. The structure. It was, a, it was the thing upon or around which all of the covenant life of Israel revolved. It sat smack dab in the middle of the encampment. It was built. All the tents surrounded it. If you remember from Numbers, I showed you pictures of of what we think it would have looked like. There weren't any photographs. They seem to all have been lost from that time. But of, of all these literally millions of people living in a massive circle around this tabernacle. And when it was time to move, they would tear it down and certain people were allowed to carry its parts. And the the tabernacle would go out ahead of the people. And then they would move from place to place. And as they arrived in their new place, the tabernacle would be set up and all the tents would once again be set up. They were to see the tabernacle as the central aspect of their covenant with God. Everything revolved around it. And when God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, he showed Moses a pattern, a blueprint, if you will. And he said to him, make sure, look at this, understand this, this is all the specifications for it, You build this thing exactly the way I told you to. Nothing is to be changed from this pattern that I show to you. Every detail of that building was to be perfectly reproduced because every aspect of that building pointed people forward to Jesus and the cross. It was all about Jesus. Every aspect of it was about Jesus, who he was, and what he would accomplish. But you know, as I thought about it more recently, I thought, you know, it was really a pretty unimpressive structure for being the worship place of the Most High God. It was a pretty unimpressive structure. And I was thinking about how we build our churches, our buildings, and and just driving around town, trying not to be judgmental because our building is pretty nice and big. But just, just thinking about it, we build really big, impressive structures and we, we say that we want, to, well, we want people to see how valuable God is to us, which is a good motive. I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical of that. And, and we say that we, we, um, we want to demonstrate the glory and greatness of God through our buildings. And that's been through history as, as far as how they've been designed and built. And yet here is God telling Moses to build the first building where God would dwell. And it's not very impressive. 
I, I've, I, for the first time, kind of got it in. I've always had this weird picture in my mind of this really big thing that was really beautiful. But the reality is that the, that the entire courtyard of the, of the tabernacle, not, not the building itself, but the courtyard where everything took place, was about the footprint, and I actually measured it off this week in my, that, that's what you pay me to do, is I measured off this, this building this week. And it's pretty close. The, 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 the footprint of the, of the new part of this building, give or take some square feet, is pretty close to the courtyard of the tabernacle. Going from the outside wall to outside wall and from the hallway wall on the other side, the brick wall, the old building, to this wall is the courtyard of the tabernacle. That was it. And it was 15 feet tall, and I didn't get out tape measure to see how tall this is. And Bray, do you know? I was thinking, I was thinking this probably, it's probably maybe 20 feet tall, I don't know. But it was 15 feet tall, the, the building itself. But do you know that the, this, this was fascinating to me, and Terry set these chairs up, so it must be a God thing that it happened. It just God wants us to see this, you know. I'm being, not being silly. The tabernacle itself fit right in the middle section here. This, this, this middle section was the full size of the tabernacle, almost exactly when I measured it off this week. And, and the back three rows, so the Femlers, Bardas, Phelps, and my family, of course, are in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. Yeah, it just makes sense, doesn't it? It's just like, duh! And then the rest of you are in the holy place, which that kind of makes sense too, that there aren't too many that qualify though, if you really look at it. And then the rest of you are somewhere in the courtyard. You're not actually in that. But, I mean, do you think of the tabernacle being that small? It just kind of struck me how, how small it really was. And, and to see it from the outside and understand that if you, if you were a Gentile, I, I, I ask this from time to time, just in case, does anybody here have Jewish heritage? I will love you, don't worry, anybody here? So none of you, you do, okay, you, but you're, you're not a guy, so you still are disqualified. But none of us, could be in these seats, in this section. Could never go in it at all. In fact, and because, sorry, because you're female, um, none of us could actually uh, see inside the fence of the courtyard. We're all Gentiles, except for somebody who has some, Hannah, right, has some Jewish background. But men only were allowed into that courtyard. And there was a seven and a half foot wall, a fence made of white linen, all the way, the finest white linen, all the way around that thing. So I, I started wondering how many kids 
uh, because the, there were certain families that lived within a certain distance of that, the courtyard. How many of those kids tried to get on top of something tall and jump to see over the top of it and see inside the courtyard? It's just kind of one of those weird things I think about. Seven and a half feet tall, all you could see was the very top edge of the tabernacle itself, but everything else we could have never seen. And technically, as Gentiles, we couldn't have even been in the camp. We weren't supposed to be there. So we wouldn't have seen it. It was, it was extremely exclusive. To get into it, if we were Jews, we would, we would walk up to the entrance, we would be passing through on the east side of the, the end, so this would have been the east side, not, I don't think it actually is, I get mixed up in here. There's no mountains for me to orient with. Uh, growing up in Colorado, you don't use compasses, you use the mountains. That's how you know what direction is which, seriously. And you don't, you're not taught how to figure out directions any other way. If you live in the, in the front range, the mountains are to the west. So you just find the mountains and everything else falls into place. If you live on the western slope, you look to the east, and that's the mountains, and everything else falls into place. So there's no mountains in here. Somebody should probably put mountains on the west wall, and then I'll know where I am. But you'd enter in. We'll make this the east, wall, the east entrance. You come in. You, you walk through the tents of the Levites, who are the guards of the tabernacle. You walk through their tented area with your lamb or your bull or your ram, your goat or a ram, depending on what you're offering. You come through their tents. You walk up to the entrance. You come through the entrance after you're allowed to go through, and then you'll see the tabernacle in front of you. And it's covered. The, the, the entrance to the tabernacle has a, has a beautiful veil, a, a beautiful uh, curtain of purples and reds, blues hanging there. But otherwise, it's covered in leather. It's got several layers that are colorful, but on top of all those colorful layers is one big brown leather cover. So you can't even see all those colorful levels. They're there. So you got this relatively small little building that looks kind of blah. It's just ironic to me that God building his first place of earthly residence would build something so unimpressive. But what happened inside there and what was inside there was amazing inside that tabernacle. But we would continue forward if we were Jews with our a Jewish male, with our animal. And we would be met with a priest by a priest, but we would immediately entering that tabernacle grounds would be confronted with the sights and sounds and smells of animal slaughter. That would be your first impression. 
Blood would have been everywhere. Around the entrance sides were tables where animals were brought to be slaughtered. Their throats would be slit and the blood would be drained. And after butchering the animal, its parts would be carried over to the altar, the brazen altar. Before it was slaughtered, you as the offerer would place your hands on that animal and you would confess the sin for which you were bringing that animal for slaughter as a sin offering. And the idea was that you were, by placing your hands on that animal, placing your sin on that animal and transferring penalty to that animal. Transferring your sin to that animal and transferring your penalty to that animal. And then that animal would be taken to have its throat cut. You would know that that animal died in your place paying the penalty for your sin and keeping you in covenant with God. That's what was required. And then it was time for you to walk back out the entrance and return to the reality of life, work, and family. But you would return over and over and over again through your lifetime, repeating that process whenever you sinned. May I just interject here? that that is Christianity for most Christians. We don't kill an animal. But we come over and over and over and over and over again seeking forgiveness of sin and returning back to the reality of life. Many people do it on Sundays. Entering into their Supposed tabernacle. Every week coming and somehow hoping for some forgiveness of sin and confession of sin and hoping for a sacrifice in a sense that covers for their sin and then they walk out the doors to the reality of life to do it all over again the next week. And many Christians every week are going through the same kinds of rituals with different, with a little bit of change, no dead animals, but coming over and over again with the same rituals and the same practice, hoping that something will one day be better. If you had the opportunity to stand inside the tabernacle and watch, you would see priests in their white linen getting covered with blood from the animal sacrifices, busy all day long moving through this ritual of listening to the confession, taking the animal, slaughtering the animal, butchering the animal, bringing the butchered parts to the altar to burn on the altar, going back to the next person in line, just continually all day long, every day. Once a year, there was a special offering on a special day. 
known to the Jews as Yom Kippur, known to us more as the Day of Atonement. On this day, the high priest, after a lengthy process of offering sin for himself and repeated ritual washings, would offer sacrifice on behalf of the covenant people for the nation. He would carry the blood of the sacrifice. After having washed himself in the in the basin out in front of the entrance to the tabernacle. He would, he would carry the blood through the entrance of the tabernacle and pass into the holy place. He would find himself surrounded suddenly by stunning beauty. Outside, death and sin reign. The smell of death, the sights of death, the sounds of death. Rain. But inside, he's suddenly in a quiet place of gold and tapestries. It's an incredibly beautiful, peaceful place. On one side of him is a massive golden candlestick that provides the light. On the other side is a golden table, table of showbread. And again, this all fits in the rows from the femler, or from the, from the kautzes forward. He comes in, it's not a big area. He comes in there and he sees these things. And in front of him is another altar of incense that's perfuming the room and the coals are burning. And with, I would imagine, a lot of fear and terror in his heart, he approaches the second curtain and moves around the side of that second curtain with the blood and stands in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Not a massive thing itself. He's in a smaller room now. He has drawn into the presence of God. He was near, now he's in the presence of God. The room would have been filled with the smoke of God's presence, the cloud. And he would probably, my guess would be, he would not lift his eyes, but he would focus on his blood and he would take the hyssop, he would dip it into the blood and he would sprinkle it onto the Ark of the Covenant and then he would leave. He was not allowed to stay. He had one purpose in that room and that was to atone for the sins of the people with his blood and then he had to get out of there. And nobody went back in that room for another year. He retraces his steps back to the courtyard where death reigns. And he stands in the courtyard and shouts out in Hebrew, it is finished. Every year. And then the next day, all the sacrifices would start again. All the dying, all the confession, all of the blood would start over again. Today the nation stands 
accepted with God, but tomorrow sacrifice is once more required. There was never any finality to the sacrifices because they were only shadows of things to come. But as hopeless as that leaves me feeling, it got worse. You see, the sacrifices never removed the sense of guilt. You never walked away from your sacrifice. You never walked out of that courtyard with a sense of cleansed conscience. That's what it tells us here. In verse 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Every time you went and offered sacrifice, you went through that whole ritual and walked out feeling just as dirty as when you walked in. The high priest, after all of his ritual on the Day of Atonement, walked into the presence of God with a sense of terror and fear and guilt. And hear this, would have walked out of the tabernacle with a sense of relief. You understand that? He was relieved to get out of there alive because he was dirty and sinful in the presence of an almighty God. And if he messed up in any aspect of what he was doing, he was a dead man. So he would leave the presence of God with relief. You want the old covenant? You want the old covenant? You can't take parts. That's the old covenant. There was nothing the offerer of the sacrifice could point to or rest in that could bring relief. The law constantly condemned the sinner, constantly condemned the sinner. The sacrifices reminded him of the penalty and one's conscience could never be at peace. Outside of the one day and outside of the whole high priest, none of the tabernacle rituals would ever allow the sinner to enter into the presence of God or provide access to God. In fact, in the Old, in the old Covenant, in the Old Testament writings, you will find a statement of the priests could draw near to God, but everyone else was afar. Even on the day when God met with Moses and Aaron went with Moses and the leaders of the tribes went with Moses, God said, Moses can come near. The rest of you stay afar. Stay far away from me. You'll die. 
Now, I was thinking about all of the statements in the New Testament that speak of us being able to draw near to God. And I, as I thought about that, I thought the high priest could never enjoy being in the presence of God, ever. I've heard people talk about how it would have been such an enviable thing to be the high priest on the, that was chosen on the Day of Atonement because he got to go in there. But folks, it was a place of fear and it was a place of condemnation. It was not an enviable thing. I got to imagine that if I was a priest and I, you know, the names got chosen and mine wasn't chosen, it would have been, I kind of like to see what's in there, but mm-mm. I don't want to go in there. Sin had brought separation and those sacrifices could not bridge that gap. They couldn't do anything to fix the separation. And verse 8 tells us that all of what happened was intended to remind the sinner through the work of the Holy Spirit by this the Holy Spirit indicates through the work of the Holy Spirit all of it was intended to remind human beings that the way into the presence of God was not found in the law or the Old Covenant. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places, the presence of God, is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is or which was symbolic for that present age. It could not be found in the Old Covenant. It was not through any of the rituals connected to the tabernacle. It all pointed towards something else. So I was thinking about this, I thought that really what those people experienced under the old covenant is really the state of all who reject what Jesus accomplished in his death. And I I could add here, for all those who embrace the old covenant, you are in some sense rejecting what Jesus has accomplished in his death. But for those who reject outright Jesus' person and work in his death, there are those in that group of people who, who do realize that they have sinned. They do realize that, that they are sinners. And for those people, that realization is a place of guilt and condemnation. And for those who care, most don't. I saw a, 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 an article the last couple of weeks the latest statistics in the United States is we, for the first time since they've been keeping track of this, have crossed the threshold of being a, of people who 
are churchgoers, okay, period. I'm not talking Christians, but churchgoers of any kind are in the minority. Up until this year, it's always been over 50% of the population in the United States identifies as people who participate in some kind of church practice, or at least identify with the church. We slipped under that for the first time ever. And I've said it before, in Cedar Rapids, we're 40 plus percent of people who have no church affiliation of any kind. It means if you asked them, what religion are you, they'd say none. Doesn't mean, that means Hindus, Buddhists, Islam, Christianity, over 40% say none, no religious affiliation at all. But for that minority of people who actually care about their sin, and whatever religion they're a part of, it is a constant experience of striving to do enough, to be good enough, and hoping that scales will tip in their favor. On what basis do you think God will accept you? And they will usually say something, well, I've I've tried to be a good person, and I'm hoping that my good works will outweigh my bad works. But it's a hopeless experience. Because in the end, following even their best moments, the guilt begins to creep back in. Because they've rejected the one significant moment in history that offers them any relief to their conscience. It's kind of like the hamster in the exercise wheel. A lot of energy is expended and the goal is never reached. It's a place of despair. But there is hope. I, I, this passage ends with no hope. I can't end today with no hope. I just can't do it. There's hope in the despair and it's found in that most significant moment of human history when Jesus died on the cross. And I'm just going to hold that out to you and we'll talk about it more next week. But I want to ask you, if you sense the hopelessness of trying to be good enough for God to love you and accept you, if you feel the despair of never having a clean conscience before God. And you're a Christian. Why do you hang on to that system? Why can you not believe that God accepts you solely on the basis of what Jesus has done? Why cannot you believe that no matter what you ever do, God loves you as much as he did the moment that you trusted in Jesus?
Why do you believe that your good works somehow make God love you more, like you more, accept you more? Why go there? We've got to understand that that is the way of the old covenant. And it's done. We have got to not only say we, we believe or we affirm, we've got to come to a place where we not only affirm that Jesus is our righteousness before God, but we also embrace that in how we live and move in our relationship with God. You can't have it both ways. You're killing yourself. I want to end today simply by asking you to go from this place thinking about what was and how awful it was to try and live as one of the people of God It was supposed to be awful, folks. It was supposed to be. Because the law condemns. I want us to think about what was and what might have actually changed when Jesus cried out, it is finished. Because He, as our great high priest, when He cried out, it is finished, everything was finished, was done. It was a very different cry than the priests from the order of Aaron. I would ask you to think about, was it simply the ending of animal sacrifices or was it something comprehensively greater? Comprehensively greater. Was it only related to the problems of our past Or did it, moving forward, bring radical change to who we are and how we relate to God? There is a reason why Paul writes to the saints in the church at Ephesus and the church of Colossae and even to the church of Corinth, that messed up place. The writer of Hebrews is going to answer those questions and more as he moves in chapter 9. But in the meantime, I would encourage you to ask God to open your ears to hear and your eyes to see and your heart to receive the truth of all that has been accomplished in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we say that you are good. And we think of that in terms of the circumstances of our life. And we get so confused when the circumstances of our life don't feel good. Open our eyes to see the goodness of the new covenant. Open our eyes to see the goodness of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. Open our hearts to sense 
to believe that all that you have done for us in Jesus is so good that it dwarfs the circumstances of this life. Help us to think as Paul thinks that he considers all of the suffering of this life that he experienced to be a light momentary affliction a scratch on his arm compared to the glory that is going to be revealed. God, help me to see that and to believe that. Help us to be people who live in the goodness and the mercy and the graciousness of the new covenant. Not just in an affirmation of a truth of Jesus died for my sins. To understand what it means that you will remember our sins no more. We love you. And we thank you for your son. In his name, amen.